0: Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet and this is the AIF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome and thank you for tuning in. Welcome back to another episode of the AIF Exchange, where we will continue our discussion on the economic impact and response of the COVID-19 pandemic with Douglas Holtzakam. Doug, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, how was your Labor Day weekend? Had a good weekend. We had
1: fantastic weather in Washington D.C., so that was a real plus. It allowed for you to be outside, uh, socially distanced, doing something recreational, and not sweating to death. Fantastic.
0: Yeah. <laughs> a couple of couple of my uh, friends and I, we quarantined for the specific amount of time you're supposed to, and then we went up to the Poconos for the weekend, and just you know, got to see each other for the first time since this all began. Had some. Stayed in in the Airbnb up there and had a great time. So without sweat, like you said, without sweating. It actually got pretty cold at night where I had to put a sweatshirt on a couple of times, but-
1: I'm looking forward to that.
0: (laughs) So some some good nights. Okay, but let's jump into it. Congress is coming back with only a couple of days left in the legislative session before it breaks for the upcoming election. Uh, The Senate is expected to vote today, I believe on the GOP's more targeted or so-called skinny COVID-19 relief package. What do you need to know about this bill? How big is it and what's in it? So I think the vote's
1: actually going to end up being tomorrow. Uh, it is a an attempt by uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to get 51 votes for a Republican alternative so that he can say Republicans supported some particular efforts on relief and the Democrats opposed it. So that's the politics of it. And it would strengthen his hand in negotiations. It's got some things that Republicans have been looking for. Namely, uh, business liability protections so that you cannot be sued over um, coronavirus infections. Um, It's got additional uh, unemployment insurance benefits, $300, not $600, but $300 uh, in there. And it's got um, some more money for the popular Paycheck Protection Program and about $105 billion for states and localities, including education. Odds and ends for ranchers and farmers and uh, medical supplies, you know, things like that. Um, it costs top line something like $600 billion. There's some savings from previously unspent CARES Act money. That, so the net will be less than that. On the whole, it is a skimmy bill uh, and targets some particular things that have been on the list of negotiated uh, items. Um, it, it's not going anywhere in the sense of becoming law, but it is an attempt to further the negotiations uh, on the Republican side.
0: Yeah, I mean, We've said this is a skinny bill. You know, the bill is far from the multi-trillion dollar legislation we were talking about a month or so ago. So what is missing from this bill? What's different from that bill? Yeah, well, and
1: some of it is uh, just the things in it are skinnier. Um, so UI benefits, 300, not 600, uh, last to the end of the year, not into 2021. 20, uh, uh, state and locals $105 billion. Um, The Democrats' preferred provision in their uh, so-called HEROES Act is a trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. Um. So both of those things are way bigger and uh, would cost a lot more. Then there are things that, uh, that are simply not in here at all. There's uh, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in additional health spending in the Heroes Act. There's hundreds of billion dollars in transportation assistance and uh, renter relief money and education money and, you know, it's a a far more a think of every potentially affected constituency and make sure they get some money. Um, for that reason, Democrats have referred to this as the emaciated bill. They don't see it as anywhere nearly adequate. And, uh, you know, the impasse remains.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's focus on uh, a certain point of this bill, one of the biggest sticking points in the really package negotiations, and that's the uh, unemployment insurance supplement. Yesterday, AAF released new research by Isabel Soto, our uh, labor policy analyst, on how large the supplement needs to be to be to keep people out of poverty? What did you find there? So
1: here's why this is important, right? If you, if you, uh, we had a $600 benefit, and if you lower it, uh, two things happen, and they go in opposite directions. Uh, The first thing is uh, the barrier to employment gets lower, and you have better incentives in the labor market, people can go back to work, um, and that's the the main reason to have it be lower. Uh, At the same time, if you are out of work, and you don't uh, get a job, the flow of transfer income to that that unemployed household has gone down and that can be problematic for that household certainly and maybe for the economy as a whole if there's a lot of households like that so if you lower the the barriers to to uh, work and people want to go back to work and they all find jobs then private payrolls will provide an income flow and you don't worry about the transfers to the unemployed that much on the other hand if the barrier goes down and people can't find a job then you that could be that they they start to get stretched too thin and we get some some direct uh, impacts on them and, and feedback into overall demand in the economy where you land in this debate really depends how much you put weight on each of those scenarios and so so what Isabel did which is incredibly valuable is for the first time answer the question well how should I think about this second part how how big does this need to be is it 600 or bust um, or is there a number that's not zero that we will take care of the problem. Well, you have to figure out what the problem is and, and a way to do that is to say, okay, whether you like it or not, we have a standard, the federal poverty line, that is a, a line of demarcation in your income above which we have deemed this as, as better and below which unsatisfactory. So let's look at the federal poverty line for different kinds of households, because it differs by household, and take the the, the state uninsurance insurance benefit, uh, UI benefit, add, Different levels of federal benefits, and find out what keeps everyone out of poverty. And so she did that for all the states. She took a median wage worker and she took a minimum wage worker. She put them in different sizes of households, and 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 whether they're one or two workers, and just did the computation. And said, are you in poverty or not if you can't find a job? And what what you find out is you don't need six hundred dollars. You don't need five hundred dollars. You might, in some extreme circumstances, with a Single earner and a bigger family at minimum wage need the 400, 300 gets you there, and sometimes 100 is enough. If it's just a person, small household. So, uh, the I think what it it reminds us is that yet once again, the right answer is never at the extremes. It's not 600, and it's not zero. Mm -hmm. If you are worried about people's standard of living, you can land somewhere in between, and and by and large, take care of those who are unemployed. Again, always hoping that this isn't the best way to to take care of them. You want them to go back to work in the end.
0: Right. Another big issue, one of the biggest issues we've talked about um, on this podcast is making workplaces safer, you know, making sure that employees can go back to work, work, you know, operating the economy in the face of the virus. I saw a survey from Edelman that suggested only 14% of workers feel comfortable going back to work. To what extent does this bill include things? um you've discussed uh or the negotiations rather not since we don't really have a bill yet such as the tax credit for businesses to improve work requirements uh
1: that remains a dream right it's it's just like gladiator where you know there once was a dream called rome well there once was a dream called a healthy workplace tax credit it still is that (laughs) it's not in the republican alternative it's never been in the heroes act so it remains out there uh hopefully in the mix but but who knows
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we've even talked about that that something like this could be used for school, for getting students back to school and, you know, just getting people back to maybe into sitting at in restaurants even or something of that nature.
1: Yeah, I, we keep doing the same calculation, which is, you know, gee, if we got a virus and or got a vaccine and the virus went away, then we wouldn't need to do this. But I sure wish we'd done this in April and May so the people could go back to college. Um, you know, it, I think this this really sort of heightens uh, two things. Number one, what do we know about the likely success of these uh, virus programs and the take-up rate of the population once they're, they're certified as safe and effective? That's a really big question. I don't think anything looks like uh, the virus goes away in January. I mean, the vaccine might appear, but it's a different proposition. And there's also the issue of how do you want to configure your tax code so that it is ready for this kind of a of a an episode in the future. Do you want to simply have not a special thing, but a a provision that in the event of a declaration of an emergency, we automatically have a tax credit available for people have to modify workplaces to make them safe? Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound like a crazy idea. So you know, I think people ought to sort of think about all of
0: this. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of my of our conversation last week where we were saying, you know, as schools are starting up again this week, we should have been having all this conversation about safely reopening schools back in may and april when this pandemic was just beginning
1: yeah and we're not we're just not ready at so many levels i mean you know the i live in arlington virginia northern virginia for listeners outside of this area and you know they they first day of classes was yesterday they were virtual and they were disaster Mm the platform failed and no one could get in and you know that's quite frustrating for parents who are trying to Get their kids used to a school routine that's that's hard enough with young kids, and you know, get them ready to, to follow that routine, to have it not work. You know, I think this is just driving people crazy. And I for one just want to say we as a as a country have flunked mute and unmute. We simply do not know how to do these things, <laughs> and I don't know why.
0: <laughs> on our on our weekly office Zoom calls, I feel like there's always one person that just starts talking and we're like, we're all like, unmute, unmute.
1: As a theoretical proposition, it shouldn't be that hard. But I've watched enough of these calls that this is something we can't do.
0: <laughs> it's pretty entertaining. Um, to add to the fun of September, um, we're also in the last month of the fiscal year. Um, so Congress has to pass funding for the federal government. Is it likely a relief bill will even get what could get attached to a CR?
1: So the, the theory of the case is is pretty simple. Um, uh, it is reported, all this is secondhand. So it's reported that there is agreement that the government should not shut and that there should be a, quote, clean, as in no special provisions, continuing resolution that continues the activities of the federal government, the current levels of funding. And so you just extend it out. Uh, It's not clear how long it would last all the way to the end of the calendar year, but certainly past the election so that they can go home, campaign, come back, pick, pick up the pieces. Uh, so that's that's a vehicle that, in principle, they've they've written and they've gotten a drawer and could go on the House floor, pass go on the Senate floor, pass, President signs, deal's done. They're continuing to negotiate on this list of items that are responses to the recession, the, the aid to states and localities, the UI benefit, the business liability, that list of things, uh, additional um, checks, probably the big fourth one. Um, if they can reach agreement on any or all of those things. They can then attach those to this CR. If there's an agreement, it doesn't threaten the ability of the the CR to pass and the government to stay open. And so, the lever they're using to get to agreed upon yes is is that it must be able to ride on the CR and not jeopardize the the, the government. And so that's that's where we are in that.
0: Interesting with the election looming, uh, I I would have to imagine that both sides want to get this work done and go home. But is there a possibility that they won't be able to get a deal on the CR or another relief bill? So basically, I'm asking, is the government shutdown a possibility?
1: Um, I don't think the government shutdown is a big possibility. But I think the the biggest um, probability right now is that there will be a clean CR and there will not be agreement on the the so-called phase four negotiations, the the COVID responses, um, you know, there has been no agreement so far. Um, the president's done some things by executive action, and all sides—Republican, Democrat, House, Senate, White House—are ha- out there polling like mad daily, most likely. And the 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 sort of read of those polls is that nobody's winning or losing because of this. No one's getting blamed for the absence of an agreement. The president's not getting a bump because he did something and Congress didn't. And so there's no real danger um, to not getting to yes. And there are some people who feel that Democrats don't want to give the president the victory right before the election and, you know, sort of the, the usual political cross currents that come with this. Um, so I think there's a very good chance they don't they don't do any of those things. They do a CR and they go home. Um, I think that's a risk management mistake. Now, the, I, as I've said before, I don't think we're headed for a double dip recession. I don't think it's in the cards that this is going to fail. I think um, the this economy will recover, but it will recover faster and at less pain for um, the people of the United States if there's some smart, sensible legislation at this point. I just don't think we're going to get it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of the economic recovery, you were on Meet the Press Daily last week. Seems to be a monthly appearance for you on Jobs Day. Of course, discussing the jobs report and the impact of COVID-19 on the economy. What did the jobs report tell us about the economic recovery?
1: Uh, I, I don't think it told us a lot, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that we, we we were expecting, you know, like a, um, a million jobs. We got a, a million four. That's a good number. Um, real information is... 4 million or zero, um, because both of those things tell you something you you wouldn't possibly have guessed about the strength of the recovery. One quite good, one quite terrifying. So on, on that front, um, I, I don't think it did a lot. It dropped the unemployment rate down below 9%, which was a huge surprise. Um, and, you know, I don't know that that told us a lot substantively because, we continue to have a little bit of trouble figuring out what unemployed means these days because you cannot work and be unemployed. You cannot work and not be unemployed. And, you know, we have these various states. So I put less stock in that one than than others. But optically, you know, it, it wasn't bad enough to drive additional uh, legislation. It wasn't good enough for anyone to declare victory. So here we are.
0: <laughs> Seems to be the same old story. So finally, uh, the CDC released a rule, uh, I believe last week, that would allow renters to avoid paying their rent until the end of the year. Um, AF's Director of Financial Service Policy, Thomas Wade, um, has been pretty critical of of that rule. What is this rule trying to do and what are its flaws? The
1: rule is an attempt to, again, bypass Congress, do it with executive action and, and not require legislation, and to provide relief to those financially strapped renters who face eviction for non-payment of their rent. And so what the rule says is, remember, it's the CDC that issued this. So for our, for public health reasons, you, the landlord, are not allowed to evict anybody. You must keep them in their shelter because we're in the middle of a public health crisis. And you will face um, you know charges if you don't. There are penalties to the landlords for violating the, the rule. That all sounds great, however, uh, it doesn't get rid of the rent. It just says you don't have to pay it. So it's building, and when you get to the end of December, you will owe all the back rent. And so it's not really letting the renter out from beneath this in, in the long run. They're gonna have to pay their rent. And in the interim, you're stiffing the landlord who's not getting the rent that they they normally would have. So they are carrying the cost of this, you know, sort of disguised loan to the renter. And so it's quite frustrating. Uh, to many, that the administration would say, "Okay, this is what we're going to do," and not put any money on the table. If you want to, if you want to do this, put some money on the table for the landlord so that they are also being carried to the end of the year, and then, you know, find a payment plan for the renter if that's what you want, and and settle things up. But but that's not what's going on. So the criticism comes from the fact that you really are just forcing the landlords to provide loans to to their renters, and and that they're in the middle of a mess as well. Why why demand that of them? Mm-hmm. Of course, the, the the hitch is that to get any money, you'd have to go to the Congress, and they they can't, they don't want to do that. So, um, it's a, a again another stopgap measure where the president can say I did something, and the response from the Democrats will be, well, what you did wasn't all that great. And so yeah, we'll, we'll hear
0: that for the next uh, couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because on its face, it seemed like to me it was a good idea. Like you well, said about the assistance aspect
1: very similar in character to the payroll tax deferment that the president offered up you know as it turns out what that executive order really said is the employer for the american action for me has the option so it's literally uh, my decision whether i want to um stop taking payroll taxes from you for the remainder of the year if i do you're going to have to pay them back next year so you're going to have a big lump sum due at some point um and worse um if I do that and then you quit and go take a job at some other um, place, which you're not allowed to do for the record, um, <laughs> I, I, I owe the taxes because um, the employer is always responsible for sending them in. So this is not something that a lot of employers are super enthusiastic about. And and, and so, you know, same lack of enthusiasm uh, accompanies the, the eviction protection.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, is there a better approach to solving this problem? Is it just including something with assistance here? Or is there just a better policy goal
1: here? If you go back to the very beginning of our discussions, which um, I don't know what number we're on now, but we've both aged noticeably during this series. So it was a while back. Um, If you go back, the, the basic strategy here is to use the tremendous borrowing power of the federal government to feed money into the economy. The original incarnation was, you know, PPP money into small businesses, you know, Checks and uh, pandemic insurance to the household sector, airline loans, Main Street lending program loans just flood the the economy with cash that that is being borrowed from the future by the federal government. The same basic lesson remains. You you can't just rearrange the deck chairs in the middle of the crisis. You have to go outside those existing deck chairs because they're all strapped, get some money from the future, and apply it to problems. And that means going through Congress, and that's the issue.
0: Makes sense. Well, Doug, thanks again for joining us. Um, as always, what's what's going on this weekend? Anything fun and exciting?
1: Um, I think I get to watch the dog. So, wow.
0: Well, <laughs> football is back tomorrow. We're recording on a Wednesday we're not, we're not usually do Thursday, but so football is back tomorrow. So hopefully we'll be able to uh, watch some games this weekend. Um, also, I believe the US Open is this weekend. If I have my calendar, right? Uh, the US Open has
1: been going on already. And so, yes. Yeah get to get to see some of the the finals. That'll be
0: great. Right. Right. And also now that I'm thinking of it, the U S open for the golf is on this weekend too, because they rescheduled it from, from June. Yes. So Kentucky Derby was last weekend. So go figure. It's all very confusing. (laughs) It's it's, hopefully will be a good weekend for, for to relax from last weekend and have some more enjoyment. Um, Thanks again, Doug, for joining us. um, And I look forward to seeing you again next week. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.